Let me have you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation 8 for our time of study in God's Word uh, this morning. All we really want to hear from is God. We want to hear His voice. Uh, my voice doesn't matter. Anyone else's voice doesn't matter. We just want to hear from God. And He speaks to us through the Bible. And this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapters 8 and 9 and allow God to speak to us through his word today. And the title of the message is A Prayed for Justice Arrives with Vengeance. A Prayed for Justice Arrives with Vengeance. I strongly encourage you to use the sermon outline that is uh, in the PDF document where the worship lyrics have been. Some of my sermon points are a little wordy, uh, so it'll help you if, if you're... Uh, making use of that document. Every year in late March or in early April, uh, the Jews have a day of commemoration for the victims of the Holocaust in which millions of Jews were killed under Adolf Hitler's reign of terror. In addition to various ceremonies of remembrance that take place, the most striking part of this particular day comes at 10 a.m., 10 in the morning, when for two minutes, everything in the land of Israel comes to a stop. Even cars come to a stop on the freeway. You can watch this happen on YouTube. There's video of it. And everyone will pull their car off to the side of the freeway and they will get out of their cars and stand at 10 a.m. in silent reflection for two minutes to honor those who died in the Holocaust. In our passage today, we're going to be encountering a similar kind of moment in heaven when the prayers of all the saints martyred saints who have suffered are presented before God in a somber ritual that symbolizes God's attentiveness to his people who cry out to him for justice. In chapter 6, uh, verse 10, we saw martyred saints in heaven asking God, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God answers them and tells them that the time is coming. Wait a little while longer. But the cry of these souls that are under the heavenly altar is the cry of all the saints down through the centuries who have suffered greatly for the Lord's cause, and who have shed their blood, the blood of martyrdom. In our passage today, we're going to witness God fulfilling his promise to bring justice in dramatic and sweeping fashion. It's been a few weeks since we were in the book of Revelation, so let me review very briefly for you. In Revelation chapter 4, we saw... The Apostle John brought up to heaven to see how the culmination of history will unfold. In Revelation 5, he sees Christ take the scroll of human destiny from the hand of God. And then, long story short, in Revelation chapter 6, John sees 
Christ break the first four seals of this scroll, which usher in the four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringing the rise in all likelihood of the Antichrist, followed by war, famine, and then death to one-fourth of the world's population by various means. Then Jesus breaks the fifth seal, where we saw martyred saints in heaven crying out for divine vengeance upon their killers, their cry, and God's assurance that he will give heed to their cry serves as a harbinger of what is to come that we find in our chapters for today. Then Jesus breaks the sixth seal, which results in a great earthquake, the sun becoming blackened, the moon becoming like blood, blazing meteorites falling from the sky, the sky being split apart like a scroll, and then a great earthquake all over the world in which every mountain and island are moved out of their places. In Revelation 7, we saw God call for a suspension of these judgments until 144,000 Jewish bondservants of his received the seal of God on their foreheads. We also saw in chapter 7 how that many souls throughout the tribulation period that is to come are saved from every tribe and tongue and nation across the globe, many of whom will die for their faith and are seen by John in heaven. We come this morning to Revelation 8 and 9, where God's judgments resume. In our passage today, we're going to see Christ breaking the seventh seal, which in itself contains seven trumpets of further judgment. So the seventh seal contains seven trumpets of additional judgment, all of which serve as an answer to the prayers of God's people for justice upon the unrepentant wicked of this world. And we're going to see the defiant response of the wicked to these judgments, thereby revealing how worthy they are of these judgments that are befalling them. And the way we'll break down our study this morning is we'll observe eight developments in John's portrayal of God's vengeance unleashed upon the unrepentant wicked. Eight developments in John's portrayal of God's long-sought and prayed-for vengeance unleashed upon the wicked. Number one, Jesus breaks the seventh seal, resulting in trumpets bestowed and prayer-infused fire thrown to earth. Jesus breaks the seventh seal, resulting in trumpets bestowed and prayer-infused fire thrown to the earth. Observe what happens in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Throughout our study of prior chapters, we have been commenting on how loud things are in heaven We've seen thunderings emanating from the throne of God and great worship, loud worship offered to God continuously. And we've noticed how almost everything that's been said or sung in heaven has been done loudly. 
Yet here, amazingly, we see silence in heaven for about half an hour. This astonishing silence represents, I think, a few things. First of all, this is the silence of foreboding and awe over what is about to come. This is also the silence of honor, showing honor for every saint of every age who has suffered greatly or suffered martyrdom for the cause of Christ. But there's another reason for this silence. The coming verses will reveal that heaven is falling silent at this point out of deep respect for the prayers of the saints that have been offered up to God and how God right now is going to pay very special attention to these prayers for justice and carry them out. If there is anything we learn in the coming verses, we will learn that all of heaven values the prayers of God's people. The saints who cried out to God in the midst of their persecution and suffering over the centuries may have wondered if their prayers were being heard. But God heard their prayers, and in this moment, all of heaven will fall silent before the prayers of these saints. And this is not just one or two minutes of silence either. The best that John can tell, this silence in heaven, persisted for the space of half an hour. About half an hour, he says. During the space of half an hour, John continues in verse 2 and says, And I, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Before any of these angels blow their trumpets, though, an eighth angel steps forward and does something that sets the stage for what is about to follow. Beginning in verse 3, John says, another angel came and stood at the altar. This is speaking of the altar of incense, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him. A censer is a utensil that can hold both hot coals and incense. And we are told that much incense was given to this angel to put in this censer. Why? Well, look at how verse 3 continues. Much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. So the prayers of the saints are all on the altar of incense before the throne of God. These prayers exist on the altar in the form of burning incense that are giving off a fragrant aroma to God. And we're told now that this angel pours on the extra incense that he has been given, pouring it out on the hot coals of this altar. This extra incense no doubt represents God's intention to answer the prayers. And then look at verse 4. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. This smoke is ascending, no doubt, from the altar, but also, in a sense, from the angel's hand as he opens his hands and gestures before the altar. But then something totally unexpected happens 
In verse 5, John says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. So he fills the censer with the fragrant burning coals of this fire on the altar, and then he throws these fragrant coals from heaven to earth. Essentially, what he's throwing to earth is the prayers of all the saints mixed together with the incense of God's wrathful intention to give full answer to these prayers. What effect does this hurling of this prayer-laden fire have upon the earth? At the end of verse 5, John says, And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Anyone who had any doubts about the power of prayer would have no doubt after witnessing this scene. The souls under the altar in Revelation prayed for this moment, and now it is here. Saints of every age have prayed for this moment and asked the Lord, how long, how long? And now this moment is here. What is about to happen is the answer to the prayers of every saint who has prayed for God to vindicate his righteousness and to judge the unrepentant wicked and to bring his kingdom to earth. This, brothers and sisters, is the power of prayer. When you pray today for God's justice to prevail against those who do wickedness without repentance, just know that one day that prayer will return to the earth as lightning and thunder and will shake the earth to its very foundations. This is the power of kingdom prayers, which will be answered in God's perfect timing. This brings us to the second development in John's portrayal of God's prayed for vengeance being unleashed upon the wicked. Number two, the first angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in one-third of the earth burned up, or one-third of the land of the earth burned up. The first angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in one-third of the land of the earth burned up. Observe what John says in verses 6 and 7. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The first thing John sees coming from the sky is hail and fire mixed with blood, and he says that they were thrown to the earth. They weren't just dropped, they were thrown it's not hard to imagine the natural cause, maybe, of what John is describing here. Robert Thomas, in his commentary, suggests that volcanic explosions are likely the cause here, given that hail and volcanic fireballs commonly fall in a shower of rain after a massive volcanic explosion. And the volcanic ash that is in the hail and the rain would look very much like blood, which, by the way, would serve as a pointed reminder of the blood of the saints 
shed through the centuries. Whatever the natural cause of this might be that the Lord uses, we know that God is the ultimate cause, right? And the result on earth is astonishing. John says, a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Imagine fire so great and so widespread across the globe that a third of the earth is set on fire and burned up. A third of the trees and the green grass is burned up in the way that is being described here. Normally, we know here, living in the desert, that it's brown grass that is scorched by the sun that burns easily, but here, even green grass will burn. With this burning of the trees and grass would come the destruction of buildings and houses wherever these fires burn. It would involve a third of all farm production being destroyed in these fires. And then imagine the smoke of these fires spilling into the atmosphere, toxifying the air that people breathe. These fires will kill many and displace, no doubt, millions of people from their homes and jobs as businesses are destroyed, and it will have an awful effect upon the air quality, even in areas that may not be burning. It's terrible, but we're just getting started. The next development in John's portrayal of God's long-sought vengeance upon the wicked is this. Number three, a second angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a third of sea life destroyed. A second angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a third of sea life destroyed. Observe what happens in verse 8. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. This is a very large meteor falling, a meteor so large that it looks to John as if it is a great mountain and it falls through the earth's atmosphere burning with fire and as for where it lands, John says, it was thrown into the sea, hitting the sea at such a great speed. This falling mountain of rock would create a concussion that is impossible for us to even imagine. The displaced water would move like a tsunami wave across the sea until it reaches shores doing terrible damage wherever it goes. The shock wave from the impact of this mountain falling or being thrown into the sea will also have a devastating effect on the sea itself. John says in verse 8, a third of the sea became blood. We see that at the end of verse 8. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. It could be that a third of the sea becomes blood because of all of the living things in the sea that die. Or it could be that a third of the sea becomes blood-like in appearance because of some reddish substance contained in this falling mountain that landed in the water. Again, reminding the earth's inhabitants of the blood that they have shed 
throughout the centuries. What's going on here, or whatever is going on here, John in verse 9 says, a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is terrible, but this is not all that happens, which brings us to the next development in John's portrayal of God's vengeance upon the wicked. Number four, a third angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a third of the waters rendered deadly. And when we say waters here, we're talking predominantly of fresh drinking water, fresh water. Observe what happens beginning in verse 10. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. This is something that initially probably looked very much like the fiery mountain that fell earlier. Only this object seems to have exploded in the air and then broken up into millions of pieces and fallen in various places across the globe. And it ends up, John says, falling on a third of the rivers and springs, impacting the freshwater supply all over the world. John continues in verse 11 saying, the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood is a very bitter substance, though not necessarily toxic in small doses, but in this case, it is toxically bitter. When the pieces of this star, this falling mountain, whatever this is that falls and lands in the fresh waters, it makes a third of the waters bitter and deadly to drink, and the result is that many men died from the waters because They were made bitter. But God is not finished with his vengeance, which brings us to the next development in John's portrayal of God's vengeance upon the wicked. Number five, a fourth angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in heavenly bodies darkened by one-third. A fourth angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in heavenly bodies darkened by a third. Observe what happens in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. Now this could mean that the sun and moon and stars were struck with something, or more likely it means that the sky, the earth's atmosphere, is struck, creating enough dust and ash in the earth's atmosphere such that it diminishes the sun's light on earth by one-third and the moon's light by one-third and the star's light on the earth by one-third. John continues and says in verse 12, so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. This may indicate that there are certain periods of the day or night where the sun and moon and stars are completely not their light is not reaching the earth. At the very least, this means that the day and the night lights are darkened by one 
third. People are receiving only one-third of the light they would normally receive from the sun, moon, and stars. What's becoming obvious at this point is that nothing is safe, right? All the things that people normally rely on for life and sustenance are being destroyed or diminished by a third, including now the sun, the moon, and the stars, which no doubt is going to have tremendous impact on the weather and the growth of living things. Imagine what people on earth are thinking and feeling at this point, wishing that maybe this is the final thing that's going to happen and we can get back to normal, wishing that this judgment would come to an end, but their wish will not be fulfilled. Observe what happens next in verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. No eagle flew overhead to warn the earth of the seals that Christ broke in earlier chapters or of the first four trumpets that have now sounded, but now an eagle is sounding a warning regarding the remaining three, which means that they must be unimaginably awful, even compared to what's already happened. Now, some manuscripts of the Greek text, and thus some of your English translations, have the word angel instead of the word eagle. The better reading is probably eagle. Either way, this eagle flying in mid-heaven is no natural eagle because he can talk and pronounce woe upon the earth. This is clearly an angelic eagle. The Greek word that is translated woe speaks of horror, disaster, calamity. This eagle is essentially saying how horrible it will be, how horrible it will be. How horrible it will be for those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. This leads us to the next development in John's portrayal of God's long-sought and prayed-for vengeance upon the world. Number six, a fifth angel sounds his trumpet resulting in five months of torment by locust creatures. A fifth angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in five months of torment inflicted upon mankind by locust creatures. Observe what happens beginning in Revelation 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. John's language here indicates that he did not evidently see this star falling from heaven with his eyes. He simply saw this star which had already fallen to the earth. And it becomes obvious from what follows that this star is a being of some sort because John tells us that the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. The abyss is some kind of holding tank that 
is deep beneath the earth's surface. It's where the devil himself will be bound during most of the millennium, and we'll learn about that later in Revelation. The shaft of this abyss is something like a very, very, very deep well that runs from the surface of the earth down into this abyss. And we are told that a key is given to this angelic being called a star to the shaft of this abyss. And once he receives the key, John tells us in verse 2 these words, he opened the shaft of the abyss and smoke ascended out of the shaft like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened from the smoke of the shaft. This filthy smoke, no doubt emanating great heat, would arouse the concern of those who witness this phenomenon But they who witness this will soon realize that the smoke is the least of their concerns. Beginning in verse 3, John says, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the people who do not have the seal of God. On their foreheads. John describes these creatures as locusts because they evidently have some resemblance in appearance and in number to what you would typically see with the swarm of locusts, which were dreaded creatures that have plagued the world throughout human history since the fall. However, these creatures are not like natural locusts. For John says that power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power to sting. Also, typical locusts devour vegetation that grows on the land or grows from the ground. But these locusts were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And now we know why God brought a halt to all these judgments back in chapter 7 in order to take time to seal the 144,000 to ensure that they would be protected from judgments like this, creatures like this. Only those whom God has sealed with the seal of God on their forehead will be spared the harm that these creatures will do. As for what these creatures have power to do, John tells us in verse 4 that they are given power to hurt human beings who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. John also adds to his description in verse 5 and says, and they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a person. How many of you have been stung by a scorpion? All right, we got one. I see that hand. Uh, It hurts, right? The venomous sting of a scorpion is very painful. And in some cases, with some types of scorpions, it can be fatal 
in the case of these creatures, their sting will not kill, but will be so painful that the people they sting will wish that they were dead rather than continue in pain any longer. And yet, amazingly, in verse 6, John says, and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death will flee from them. Imagine such misery. Earlier in Revelation, we saw the people of the earth wishing for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them to hide them from the wrath of the enthroned God and from the Lamb. And here we see people longing to die again. Those who are tormented by these creatures will long for the grim reaper to come and take them, but instead of coming to them, the grim reaper will run away from them and not give them the death that they want. The harm that these creatures can do is astonishing, and their appearance appearance is just as astonishing. Beginning in verse 7, look at what John says. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like human faces, They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt people for five months. Wow. These are clearly creatures that have no parallel in the natural world, leading most commentators to conclude that these are demonic creatures that are impressive to behold, swift of movement, indestructible, and free to torment mankind within the limits imposed upon them For five months, five months, which happens to be the normal lifespan of a locust, by the way. As for who leads these demonic locust scorpion creatures, John speaks in verse 11 and says, They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The Hebrew word Abaddon and the Greek word Apollyon both mean the same thing. They mean destroyer. This kingly personage may be the devil himself. Or he may be a very high-ranking demonic being under Satan's direction. He will lead these creatures in tormenting mankind for five whole months within the limits of what God in his sovereignty allows. I would imagine that everyone on earth at this point is suffering from extreme forms of PTSD. Imagine the writhing pain of those who have been tormented by the stings of these creatures. Imagine their pain and seeing loved ones 
writhing in pain from the sting of these creatures. Imagine the fear of attack that people will be now living under for these five months. We have people today who are afraid to leave their homes because of COVID and the fear of infection. And in some cases, people have good reason to be extremely careful. Imagine how afraid people will be here, afraid to leave their homes and to go about their normal business for fear of being tormented by the sting of these creatures. But finally, after five awful months, these creatures go away, but no one has a moment to catch their breath. In verse 12, John says, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. And this leads us to the seventh development in John's portrayal of God's vengeance upon the wicked. Number seven, a sixth angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a massive cavalry killing one-third of mankind. A sixth angel sounds, resulting in a massive cavalry killing one-third of mankind. Observe what John says beginning in verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Make note of this, guys. The fact that this order for this judgment is coming from a voice emanating from what? From the golden altar before the throne of God. That's the golden altar of incense. Reminds us, again, that these judgments are coming in answer to the prayers of the saints who have prayed for God's righteousness to be vindicated and for him to judge the unrepentant wicked. The four angels spoken of here are said to be bound at the great river Euphrates, one of the world's great rivers which runs over 1,700 miles right through the heart of the Middle East, and it empties out into the Persian Gulf. As for the identity of the four angels who are bound at the Euphrates River, they are almost certainly high-ranking fallen angels or demons. The fact that they were bound here at the River Euphrates indicates that whatever is about to happen emanates from the Middle East and then goes across the world. John continues in verse 5 or verse 15 and says, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, John says. John wants us to know that he is not guesstimating the number of the horsemen under the command of these four fallen angels based on just kind of what he sees. Literally, he says the number of the armies of the horsemen was two myriad myriads. 
which means literally 20,000 times 10,000, which equals 200 million. I heard the number of them, John says. John is saying, don't doubt me on the number. I actually heard the number stated as 20,000 ten thousands, which equals 200 million. He continues in verse 17 saying, and this is how I saw in my vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire, of hyacinth, which is a blue or purplish color, and a brimstone, which is yellow. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone or sulfur. There are commentators who look at these descriptions here and understand these descriptions to be descriptions of actual human armies, and they suggest that perhaps John is doing his best to use the language of his day to describe modern-day armies with modern-day instruments of war. And this is actually a possible interpretation. I would lean toward those commentators who understand John to be describing a supernatural force composed of demonic beings once again. Out of the mouths of these horse-like creatures comes three things, fire and smoke and brimstone or sulfur, each of which in the mind of John qualifies as a plague in its own right. He continues in verse 18 and says, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So the fire and the smoke and the brimstone are spewing out of their mouths, bringing death. But in addition to those things, these creatures had serpent-like tails with heads that bite and do harm. Clearly, these are creatures the likes of which the world has never seen. And John is telling us that a third of the earth is killed by these demonic super beings. We saw back in chapter 6 how after the fourth seal was broken, that one-fourth of the world's population was killed. And now here we see that one-third of the remaining population of the earth is killed. If we just work off of modern-day population numbers, that would mean the killing of two billion people in Revelation chapter 6, after the fourth seal was broken, and now another two billion are killed by these demon creatures, totaling four billion in all, half of the world's population. Imagine what the world will do with this kind of death happening on this scale all around. If our world today, guys, has reacted the way that it has 
to 2.3 million people dying of COVID. Imagine the hysteria, the justified hysteria all over the world of 2 billion people dying right now within months or a few years of 2 billion people having died prior. Along with the morbid terror and the stress of enduring these judgments and then the locust creatures with power to sting and torment and now the morbid terror and stress of trying to avoid these demonic super beings with fire and smoke and brimstone coming out of their mouth. The anxiety that will abound in the world at this time is impossible for us to fathom. In fact, along those lines, perhaps you're getting curious at this point as to the state of mind of all those who have survived all these disasters. Perhaps you think that anyone surviving these judgments would be more than ready to repent of their sin and to flee to Christ for refuge. But this is not what happens, and this brings us to the final event in John's portrayal of God's prayed-for vengeance upon the unrepentant wicked. Number eight, survivors of these judgments refuse to repent of their wickedness. Survivors of these judgments refuse to repent of their wickedness. As disturbing, guys, as all that has been described thus far in Revelation 8 and 9 have been, the reaction of the survivors of these plagues described in verses 20 through 21 are even more disturbing. Charles Swindoll in his commentary says, I can hardly bear to read these two verses. And I understand that. These two verses are the most horrifying verses found in Revelation 8 and 9, showing unregenerate man to be as ugly of a monstrosity as the beings who have been described in the preceding verses. If you are naive about the human condition, you would think that all the survivors of these plagues and judgments would be grateful to be alive at this point and that they would rush to repent of their sins and to look to God. Everything they've depended on is being destroyed in their hands. Water, land, trees, grass, a sheltering sky, the air that they breathe, the sun, moon, and stars, and a stable earth beneath their feet, along with having many of their fellow human beings around them, all of these things that they have depended on and worshipped are being di diminished and destroyed. Yet observe what John says beginning in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. You can tell from the way that John is writing here that he himself is incredulous 
that these idol worshipers would refuse to repent of their worship of their stupid idols. God is clearly alive and on the move and unleashing judgment upon the world and the world's idols can't do a thing to protect these people because these idols can't even see or hear or walk. Yet the peoples of the world refuse to repent of their worship of these worthless, no-good idols. John also says they refuse to repent of worshiping demons, which is astounding. Demonic beings are unleashing horrible suffering on them, and yet they refuse to repent of their worship of demons. Instead of turning to God, who is holy and true and good, they persist in worshiping the demons who are now doing them such harm, and many of them are probably crediting their worship of demons for the fact that they even survived. John continues in verse 21 saying, And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their witchcraft, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Some of their murders no doubt involved the killing of those who believed in Christ for salvation. They refused to repent of their acts of murder. They also refused to repent of their witchcraft The Greek word translated witchcraft here is the Greek word pharmakeia. Pharmakeia, which is the word we get our English word pharmacy from. This word speaks of the use of magic potions and drugs in order to achieve a heightened state of consciousness to connect to the gods or to connect to demons or to connect to the dead Or to gain insight and power over the natural world that is not available through normal means. The peoples of the world refuse to repent of such witchcraft and anything associated with it. And John also says that they refuse to repent of their porneia. Porneia, their sexual immorality. And they also refuse to repent of their thefts. All these horrible judgments that they have endured are not enough, believe it or not, to pull them away from their sin, their precious sin. The greatest monstrosity in Revelation chapter 9 is not the hordes of demonic locust scorpion creatures or the frightening horse creatures with serpents for tails and fire coming out of their mouths. The greatest monstrosity of Revelation 9 is right here in these final two verses. It's unrepentant man. And apart from the grace of God, you and I would be just like them. Here in Revelation 8 and 9, we see the holiness and justice of God unleashed upon the world. We also see the horrifying depravity of man we sometimes naively think that if God could just unleash swift justice upon the earth in a clear-cut way everyone would fall all over themselves to believe in him but these verses show that this is not true 
Here we have judgment after judgment coming from heaven in such a way that everyone knows at this point that this is the wrath of God who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Here we have demonic creatures tormenting everyone on earth except for those who have the seal of God on their forehead. And yet those who are being tormented still don't repent of their sin and humble themselves before God. You say, well, maybe if God was nice to them, they would repent. Are you serious? Don't you get it? God is unbelievably kind to people the world over right now, every single day. Every day that he holds back these judgments from them. On top of that, God gives so many good and gracious gifts to mankind. He gives sunlight and rain and food and gladness and legitimate pleasures to the people of this world without scolding, James says in James 1, with the intent that his kindness might draw them to repentance. And yet, it does not. According to Romans 2.4, the people of this world think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is intended to lead them to repentance. On top of that, of these common grace blessings, God gave the greatest gift of all in sending his only begotten son into the world to display his image, to live a perfect life among us, And to even die on the cross for our sins to provide salvation for all who believe in him. What ridiculous grace is this that instead of sending judgment, God sends his son. And yet, by and large, we learn in John 1, the world received him not. The kindness of God alone does not lead men to repentance We see in our passage today that the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth does not lead men to repentance either. The only thing that brings a person to repentance is God doing a miracle of regeneration and giving them the gift of repentance. Apart from this miracle, all of us are completely hopeless. Do you understand that? And it is at the end of history that we will see this hopelessness on full display, which ought to make every one of us who know the Lord so grateful that God looked upon us with his mercy and touched our hearts and brought us to repentance and to faith in Christ. Our passage today shows us what an astounding miracle repentance really is. If you are a Christian and you find yourself weeping every day, over your sins and you find yourself repenting of your sin every day going to God and sometimes going to others saying I'm sorry I sinned enjoy being God's miracle and cherish the wonderful gift that repentance is cherish the fact that you can weep that you can feel sorrow and grief over your sin and that you can confess your sins to God and to other people and to seek forgiveness, that's a miracle that none of us deserve. Cherish that miracle 
and enjoy this beautiful gift of repentance that God has given to those who believe in his son. We also learn in our passage today about the long-range power of prayer, do we not? The prayers of God's saints for God to bring justice upon the unrepentant wicked are one day going to be answered. In fact, we learn in chapter 8 that the prayers of suffering saints throughout history that ascended up to heaven from arenas and prison cells and torture chambers will one day descend back from heaven in the form of lightning and thunder and will shake the earth to its very foundations. God gives great heed to the prayers of his people, of his suffering people who cry out to him for justice. And God pity the fools who mess with his children. God may not answer our prayers for his justice to come on our timetable, but when his answer does come, every saint throughout history who ever cried out to him for justice will be more than satisfied. In fact, they will be blown away by God's answer to prayer, not only in Revelation 8 and 9, but through all of eternity. So pray. Pray away. Brothers and sisters, God hears your prayers and they are precious to him. And let me end very quickly on this note. It may seem to you that God is being vindictive in these chapters, especially chapter 9, and unleashing hordes of demonic beings upon the earth to torment and kill so many. But actually, God is being very deliberate here. His goal is to show mankind the true nature of the demons they worship. If man wants to worship demons rather than God, then God will give them the demons that they want hundreds of millions of them in order to show them the true nature of the demons, the true nature of the evil that they are following. I don't, I don't know what you're putting your hope in today. I don't know what you are worshiping today. But if it's not the living God, you are on shaky ground, my friend. And you are not here today by accident. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to fly to Christ today and find refuge in Him. Pay homage to the Son, the Son of God, lest He become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who put their trust and find refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord, this chapter 8 and 9 that we have looked at this morning is a feels like an all-out assault on our senses. 
we see what befalls the unrepentant wicked and I trust if there's anyone here this morning that is in that category of the unrepentant wicked that they would repent today and fly to Jesus Christ for refuge. But when we see chapters like this of the fate that awaits those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then even later in Revelation and see that an eternal lake of fire awaits them as well where the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever not just five months but forever and ever we are sobered and burdened for all those whom we know who do not know Christ And I pray that you would make us a congregation of evangelists. That we would be like the 144,000 sealed bondservants of God who are going throughout the world during these times of judgment and preaching the truth of the gospel of salvation through Jesus We live under the light of a full sun and full moon and stars that shine at night and we have good drinking water and we have ships that travel across the sea and bring us the goods that we need. We enjoy so much bounty and blessing. This is the time of your mercy and may we as Christians do what you've called us to do to go into all the world and to tell people the glad tidings of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would empower our witness, empower our declaration of the good news of the gospel, and that many, Lord, in the coming days would be saved through the testimony and the witness of the people of this church. We also think, finally, Lord, of brothers and sisters who are alive today in various parts of the world who are suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. Some are in prison cells. Some are in torture chambers. There are actually brothers and sisters in the Lord of ours, Lord, that, that are suffering horribly for the cause of Christ. And they cry out to you for justice. They cry out to you, no doubt, for the salvation of those who are persecuting them. But if they refuse to repent, for your justice to be done and your name to be vindicated... And Lord, I have no doubt that many of these precious brothers and sisters sitting all alone in a prison cell crying out to you are wondering, are my prayers even heard? Does anyone hear? We know you hear, Lord, and you gather all of their prayers and they are there on that altar right in front of you and their prayers ascend as sweet incense to you. And one day their prayers will be among the ingredients that are hurled back to this planet and will shake this planet to its foundations. Comfort them, Lord, 
and may they know how precious they are to you, how precious they are to us. If suffering lies in our future, help us to be faithful, to do what you've called us to do without compromise, and to cry out to you just as they are doing, knowing that you are a God who hears the prayers of all those who cry unto you. Thank you for your word and for these two chapters that we have been able to experience this morning. We surrender ourselves to you, Lord, for the calling that you've given to us and power our life and our witness this week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.